0: Welcome everyone to episode number 19 of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective, of the early years of the WWF, the WWF, and the WWE. Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to look back at all these shows, a man who went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting on August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Arrizzi. John, how you doing?
1: Boy, every time we do an episode, I feel older. (laughs) I am older, but when you go back 50 years, that really shows that I'm an old fuck. And every month, you're
0: a month older, as am I. Um, And Mm. now we're into the spring. Spring is here. Baseball is back and starting a new era in professional wrestling. This is the first time ever that the McMahons no longer own the WWE, or at the time, the WWF, the WWE today.
1: Yeah, a long-time family business, and they— Did a deal with Endeavor. It's a brand new company that's going to be forming from Endeavor that combines the UFC Ultimate Fighting Championships and the WWE. So, a very historic moment, you know, for a family that promoted all these shows at Madison Square Garden years ago and everything the McMahon family has done over 70 years. Now they own 49%. Endeavor owns 51%. And uh, Vince uh, put himself back in in charge. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. I was watching one of
0: those press conferences. I think it it wasn't CNN. What was it on? CNBC. CNBC. And I'm watching it. And one thing really hit me when the interviewer was talking to Vince. And he's talking about how you feel about this. And, you know, this has been a family business. And he was more proud that he created this thing that sold for so much money. Instead of saying this has been in my family for so many years. We've been a successful business in good times and in bad. Look at what we've done owning this business for so long and now being able to sell it, of course, but he was never mentioning the pride he had You know, coming from his dad to him, to his daughter and his son-in-law. I think that was something to be said, how they built the business and they started building the business in the years that we were talking about in the seventies, the years that you went, they started building the business and trying different things, the Shea stadium show that wasn't a success, but they kept on trying different things and trying different things before they got to the WrestleMania, the first WrestleMania yeah. that turned into pay-per-views that turned into summer slams and all these different things. The seventies that we're talking about right now was how this all started and looking back and going, wow, this is a big accomplishment, not just for a company, but a family owned business.
1: Yeah, uh, that is absolutely correct. Uh, Vince is always, especially in the last several years, he is just wanting the accolades and just putting himself over, putting himself on top. I don't even know, you know, what the kids own, what Stephanie owns, what Shane owns. I don't think it's very much. He certainly has at least until the sale, eighty-five percent of the voting shares. He's gonna be the chief executive officer, the chief the chairman of the board really for the new company that's formed. We'll have to, you know, see and unpack all of this as months go by. The the sale is not going to close probably for six months. And then there's people looking into it already. Did they do the right thing for the shareholders of the WWE? So it is an interesting historic development in pro wrestling. But of course what we talk about well, the simpler days, the days when it was very cool to be at Madison Square Garden every month and to see the genius of Vince McMahon Sr. at, at work and the way he built such a very successful
0: territory. Absolutely. And speaking of uh, successful companies, we want to thank our Patreons, the people that keep the lights on here. Patreon.com slash John Arrizzi. Get in for only $5 and you add stuff every Sunday, John. What are you adding now to the Patreon for our the $5 Patreons? What, what are you adding right now?
1: Well, for 5 bucks, I mean, you get the entire archives of the Pro Wrestling Spotlight, all of the shows that have been uploaded, which are way over 200 now, and you get the podcast, like this podcast, will be released to patrons first, as well as the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast, the video podcast on Pro Wrestling Spotlight, all the shows that are archived. We put stuff up every Sunday. And for patrons, especially with our coverage of this show that we're going to be talking about from April 30th, 1973, we have some really cool 8 millimeter footage that we'll be sharing with patrons. Patreon.com slash John Arezzi. And that's exclusive stuff because you shot it personally. It wasn't you got got it from
0: someone. You shot it personally with your little 8 millimeter camera running up and down. There's close shots. There's
1: wide-away shots. There's all kinds of shots, depending where you were when the match was going on. Right. There wasn't a tripod, so it was a little shaky at points in some of these films, especially when you're being in the middle of a frenzied crowd when Pedro Morales was in the rings. But it's exciting to watch. People really dig that stuff. And Happy to put it up for patrons uh, at patreon.com slash John Arezzi. Well, today's show we're going to start, it's going to be a little different.
0: We researched the month of April 1973 in the WWWF history. And we found this, and, and we want to go over this. There were about 35 shows, not counting the two TV tapings on April 17th and 18th. And the results we put together are from shows like in Patterson, New Jersey, or Lewistown, Maine, Brooklyn, Philadelphia. Pittsfield, Tom's River, New Jersey, Albany, Concord, New Hampshire, Boston Garden, just to name a few. Finally, ending at the end of the month at the mecca of professional wrestling, April 30th at Madison Square Garden. So, John, what we want to go over first is let's talk about the guys. Like, who was wrestling mm-hmm. them? Because this is nowadays it's very different. And and here's a comparison I always like making with the show. Like today, there's very, very few house shows compared to what there were back in the day. And let's take the WWE, for example. You got, you know, you got your Raw, you got your SmackDown, and maybe you got a few other shows here and there. Back in the day, wrestlers made their money. They got to be in the ring. If you're not in the ring, you're not making money. So this is a rundown of the month of April in 1973 for the WWF and their wrestlers.
1: It was very compelling to take a look at what Richie Garcia had researched uh, for this episode of the show. Uh, when you say there were 35 shows, not counting the two TV tapings uh, that took place on April 17th and 18th. I mean, you really had, you know, the top stars and the enhancement guys, for example, Mike McCord. Most people know him as Austin Idol, wrestled 19 times in April of 73. Pedro Morales, Mr. Fuji, Buddy Wolf, they all had 16 shows that month. Gorilla Monsoon and El Olimpico, 15 shows. Chief J Strongbow, 11 of those shows in April. Freddie Blassie, at the age of 55, wrestled 14 times in the WWWF in April of 1973. And even guys like Arnie Skolin, Bruno Sammartino's manager, who was 48, wrestled 10 times. Andre the Giant was on six of those shows. Bruno Sammartino came out of his semi-retirement, and he had three tag team matches with Dominic Danucci. The Blackjacks, Mulligan and Lanza wrestled one time. Zabisco, Larry Zabisco twice. Killer Kowalski twice. Georgie Animal Steel wrestled once. The legendary Boa Brazil had one uh, show for the WWF in April of '73. And most interesting, the guy that was going to be in the main event at Madison Square Garden against Pedro Morales, Don Leo Jonathan, wrestled only once in the month of April. He really did TV only and then went to the garden to challenge Morales. And it really looked like the roster uh, was kind of consistent with 12 main event guys, not counting Monsoon and Skolin, and they both had pieces of the WWWF. And there was also uh, a special attractions where the Little People, Sonny Boy Hayes and Farmer Jerome against Sky Lolo and Little Brutus, they wrestled 14 times in the month of April. And then when you go down to the enhancement guys like Vincenti, Pomenti. 18 shows in April of 73. Joe Turco, my former tag team partner, 12 times. Luis Torres wrestled 10 times. Ricky Sexton, 10 times. Mike Conrad, 10 times. Frank Valois wrestled six times, and that matches the Andre the Giant number because he was on the road with Andre. He was his handler, his his manager at the time, so to speak. And even a guy uh, that everybody knew was Johnny Valiant. Uh, wrestled under John L. Sullivan, and he wrestled twice. The other thing that I found pretty interesting, Tim, when I was reading Richie's research, the matches that were booked in the month of April, before the Garden Show that took place on April the 30th, these guys wrestled around the horn, and then they took almost the entire show that They did at the house shows to the Garden. For example, El Olimpico against Frank Valois, Mike McCord against Joe Turco, Andre the Giant against Professor Tanaka, Gorilla Monsoon against Buddy Wolf, Chief J. Strombo and Blassie, Fuji against Tony Gurria. All of those matches were featured on the April 30th show, but they all worked against each other on the house shows that month. So it really was kind of an interesting look at how Vince McMahon Sr. promoted. This is all new information for me. With that wonderful research Richie did to look at the the show and before that garden show, April 30th, this card, with the exception of that main event, was really being wrestled uh, around the horn in all the cities that you mentioned previously.
0: And and why that's so important is back in the day, you didn't have an enhancement center that you can all go to and, you know, hey, we're going to wrestle here for the whole month and train each other and have a good time and, and see how it goes. Back in the day, if you wanted to have a good match, if you wanted to, you know, build up to the best, you started doing these house shows, and you you, you tried things, and you see how it went over with the audiences. If it went over, great. If it didn't go over, get rid of that. And by the end, when you're playing the mecca of
1: professional wrestling, Madison Square Garden, you should have the best show. Of the month Yeah the guys knew their spots You know obviously each match may have had A little bit of a different flavor Uh, So they tried stuff out What worked what didn't work But it was really interesting to see That yeah these guys kind of If you would call it rehearsal for Madison Square Garden That's what you know I would like to, you know, brand it as. But it was really fascinating to kind of take a look at that. uh, And everything, of course, led up to that sellout show at the Garden. Let's
0: get into the Garden show. Madison Square Garden, Monday night, April 30th, 1973. Bell time, 830. Another sellout crowd, 22,090. Tickets, John, uh, where'd you get the tickets? Usually you go to like, what was it, the mall? Where'd you get them again, Ticketmaster?
1: Yeah, Ticketron. It's called Ticketron or at the Garden. You know, back then it's like it could have been in just two places. I never did mail order for the garden tickets. It was either going right to that box office or going to Ticketron to pick up the seats.
0: Such a different time where you had to go to these places. And back in the day, Ticketron, uh, they had locations. This is a, uh, I'm not sure how how far Ticketron went. I know it was in New York and the upper Northeast area. And if Mm -hmm. there was going to be a show, let's not say a wrestling show, maybe there was a concert. And you don't even think about this, but you're you're going to school like two months before and you see a line outside the mall because tickets go on sale that morning. There's only two places to buy tickets at Ticketron or at. At the venue, so the box at the box office, where today you can go almost how many how many times? You have, you have all these ticket scalpers and things to go. Back in the day, before the scalping, before anybody bought the tickets, you had an opportunity of getting your tickets. Whatever goes on sale on that first day, either you're gonna be at the garden or you're gonna be in front of the mall waiting for it to open up.
1: Exactly, and uh, I remember the Ticketron. Like it was yesterday. It was in West Babylon, where I lived, and it was in the Great South Bay Shopping Center. And it was in a department store at the time called AS, which was a chain back then, but it was in AS. It was, you know, right next to the woman's clothing department. And it was a little, not even like a kiosk, but it was a countertop. And uh, I'd go there and there was really never a line because you'd go there at any given time and you could go there and pick up your seats. And I would go and I I believe there was, uh, you know, you'd look at a map of a seating chart and then, you know, you would say, all right, I want ringside. And you didn't have like today, you didn't have the opportunity to look at every single seat and say, I want this seat or that seat. If I recall correctly, the person who was working the Ticket Trauma right, you know, we do have uh, this section and this row and these seat numbers. And uh, I always would try to get the aisle seats. I mean, just because I could maneuver and move up with the camera. So even if I had to settle for seats that were not necessarily, let's say if it was seventh row, if I had to get a 10th row seat in order to get the aisle, that's what I would go for.
0: Look, at you. Look, I love the plan, John. I love the plan. Everything was a plan. Okay, I, I can I can sit in this row, but I'd be, you know, not near the aisle. If I'm near the aisle, I can run up there. And, and back in the day, running
1: up the aisle was a common thing. And, you know, in future shows that we're going to be covering, especially I remember uh, after this April 30th show and then the show after that, uh, I got Center. But on the July show of 73 and some of the other shows, in order for me to get the aisle I'd had to sit in the corner on the other side, which was really almost like looking directly at the ring post, which I didn't like the angle of it. So uh, when I shot the movies, it, it they, they just didn't look the same because it was, you were looking at the ring post as your center. And I didn't like that. I wanted to be in the center on the aisle. That was always my uh, my game plan. And if
0: you watch wrestling today and like say you're watching raw, when they're walking down that huge aisle and they won't be like leaning over and trying to touch them and stuff back in the day, the only aisle you want to get to is by the front row. So you'd run up and you'd keep your hand out because back in the day, the wrestlers used to do a little thing around the ring. If they're The, the baby faces would walk around the ring, you know, and there, there they are. And then when that's over, once they're in the ring, once both wrestlers are in the ring, then the referee is saying, okay, ready to go, and the police officers will come. Okay, everyone go back to your seats, back to your seats, back to right. your seats.
1: Yeah, and they did that pretty, uh, yeah, they did that a lot, obviously. And you would have to crouch down and kind of sneak up to the front to take your picture and and hoping that the cop didn't see you because he chased you right back to your seat. So it was always a challenge, you know, and especially because you wanted to capture the best moments with my 8 millimeter camera back then. But sometimes it was a challenge because either the crowd was frenzied or you would sneak up there and then, you know, my knees started hurting, my legs, even though I was a teenager, it was kind of like crouching down and trying to just sneak shots in or shoot a few seconds of film here and there. It was a challenge, but uh, hey, I was a young kid back then. didn't bother me. You had a good time. Let's let's start off with the first match. El
0: Olympico defeated Frank Valois in 10 minutes, 47 seconds.
1: Yeah, and Valois, as we mentioned, uh, Andre the Giant's uh, real uh, life uh, handler, uh, almost like a road agent for him. Uh, he worked in the beginning, at least, as enhancement talent on all the shows that Andre appeared on. I think when McMahon started booking Andre out himself, that Valois was eventually phased out. And McMahon will put his own people with him. And who became Andre's main guy? Because he just got into the WWE Hall of Fame. Tim White, referee. And then, of course, you have the people who uh, became very close friends with him, Frenchie Bernard and Frenchie's wife, Jackie. Uh, when Andre bought that farm in North Carolina, they moved on that farm with him and were the caretakers of that farm and did a lot of Andre's business uh, towards the latter part of Andre's career.
0: Oh, it's very interesting how everything comes together. Match number two Mike McCord defeated Joe Turco in eight minutes, 10 seconds.
1: Yeah, Mike McCord, I mean, defeating Turco, uh, McCord was this big, barrel chested guy, very mu- muscular. And I would have to say he he might have been a proponent of steroids uh, because he he when he was Austin Idol, he shrunk down quite a bit. But during this time period, I mean, I was amazed at, at how big this guy was. And this was pre superstar Billy Graham barrel chested these enormous thighs you could tell he was a bodybuilder and he was very impressive and he had great charisma and he was a he was a great heel he really was and and mike over the course of his career wrestled not only as Iron mike mccord he wrestled as dennis mccord but he really made his claim to fame for many years as austin idol and he is still with us today. I mean, he would be a fascinating interview guest uh, sometime just because he was back there at that time. He was trained by the Grahams. He was trained by Eddie Graham and Mike Graham. He made his debut in 1972. He retired in 1998. So he had a pretty long career. One fact about Mike, and it was a pretty uh, much it was a tragedy that happened on February 20th in 1975. McCord was in an airplane with Gary Hart and Bobby Shane. Uh, they were passengers on a Cessna Skyline piloted by wrestler Buddy Colt, who was also a big name at the time. They were traveling in between Miami and Tampa. They were attempting to land the plane in foggy conditions, and Colt crashed into Tampa Bay And I remember this story because it was a huge news story that Bobby Shane, who was kind of being touted as uh, a, a real future superstar, and he used to wear a crown on his head before Jerry Lawler did even, and Bobby was killed in that plane crash. It made big news in the wrestling newsstand magazines. So that was kind of a tragic thing. McCord sustained a couple of broken ankles broken ribs, severe lacerations, uh, and following that accident, McCord reportedly developed a tremendous fear of flying and who could blame him He returned to wrestling before the end of the year. That was kind of miraculous in a lot of ways. And his return from the injury led uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated to name him its most inspirational wrestler of the year in 1975. And here's another thing that could have happened um, after that plane crash. Maybe his bodybuilding and the way he was working out with weights, uh, uh, maybe he had to tone that down. Or if he was on steroids, maybe, you know, his body began to get smaller after that plane crash.
0: It's interesting, a couple of things. First of all, he went on to wrestle in Memphis, which is a territory that's not a lot of driving. And I always wondered why he didn't go to other territories. And this could be one of the reasons, because other territories, you had to be on the road for a long time. or you had and to. And in go- a plane. Exactly, exactly. And speaking of the plane crash, changing his body after the plane crash is similar to the Ric Flair plane crash, where Ric Flair, when he had his plane crash, had a whole different body type. And then after yes. after the plane crash, she became a different person. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting.
1: Go to your happy
0: place for a happy price. Your happy price, price line.
1: Yeah, that's interesting to note. Yeah, that was a good point, Tim. I mean, because Flair was a big barrel-chested guy himself in the beginning. He was a much heavier, and then, uh, and then he slimmed down and became who he was, obviously, the Nature Boy and 16-time world champion and uh, one of the true legends of the business and one of the best workers ever.
0: Let's go to match number three. Don Curtis defeated Juan Caruso in 10 minutes, 36 seconds,
1: uh, this is a, a TV event at the best, right, John? I would say it's not even a TV main event or whatever. I mean, it's, it's just kind of like Don Curtis was a legend. Don Curtis and Mark Lewin were tag team champions, So, and he was older, and Juan Caruso was just a jobber. Uh, so <laughs> Juan Caruso, also known as Juan Marino, this would be his last six appearances at Madison Square Garden, and he did not ever win one of his matches at the Garden. Poor Juan Caruso. And the great matches continue
0: with match number four. Moondog Main defeated Manuel Soto in five minutes, 59 seconds.
1: Yeah, this was one where uh, Soto and with the way Moondog Main was losing uh, around the horn, you know, you would think that maybe there'd be an upset because Soto did get pushed now and then. But uh, certainly, uh, you know, another TV main event if you will, said Dusty Rowe. <laughs> if you look at the
0: way this happens a lot, it happened back then. You had the build-up, 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 build-up. Let's first Pedro. Now you're going down, 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 out. So that that was a common
1: thing back in the day, right, John? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was exactly how you said it. I mean, you, you, you go in, you, you, you win, you go into the garden, you face Morales if you're being pushed as the big heel. And then after that, the opponents get to be lesser, like... Moon Moondog fighting maybe Strongbow and then Soto. And then before you know it, you're
0: out and you're out of the territory. And, and I think what's interesting also, this is before the Intercontinental Championship, because then what would happen is, you know, you work, 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 your way up. You have the champion. And after that, then you go to the Intercontinental Champion and then you work down again. So I think maybe they added that because they got some guys in there. You go, we want to keep around some more, but we don't want them against the champion anymore.
1: Yeah, it's all about, you know, who was getting the push, who was in whose time was up. You know, because he, they'd filter guys in and out of the territory. McMahon was really smart about that, Vince Sr. And and the one thing about him, he would tell a guy when they entered the territory, all right, you're going to start on this date, you're going to end here. And that was it. Match number five, WWF tag team champion, one half, Mr. Fuji, fought Tony Guerrilla to a 20-minute time limit draw. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is a match you might have gone to the concession stand and picked up a... A nice cool beer. Well, I couldn't even drink beer. I was still underage. But uh, maybe get a popcorn and a and a and a Seven Up.
0: I love Tony Garea, but I couldn't watch Tony Garea versus Mr. Fuji for twenty minutes.
1: Uh, Fuji was never the best worker in the world, and he was very predictable. Not very, not very much in his repertoire in regard to moves and Gurria was just so technically skilled in those drop kicks that he did. And, and the girls liked him. He was really had uh, those movie star looks, you know, so Gurria was certainly a high flyer, uh, much more agile than Fuji. And that feud, you know, how many times can you see, you know, Gurria and Dean Ho against Fuji Tanaka? I mean, it's just, it was just, it was just like, what's the point? 20 minutes. It's a freaking draw. Very boring. I don't know if I mentioned this
0: before on the air or not, so I'll bring it up again. Um, uh, When I started watching the WWF back in the day, one of my favorite tag teams was Tony Guria and Rick Martel, so I was always a big tag team fan because of that. Later years, I was working in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and I was working at a radio station, and we were doing a house show, and there were some winners there that were going to get to go meet some wrestlers, and... They got to meet, oh gosh, I remember the house being full of great wrestlers, but they brought in uh, Duke the Dumpster to meet the people. I'm like, really? Out of everybody who's here, you never been? And they brought in a couple. I think Alonzo Blaze came and one other person. Just with the talent they had there, th- those are the people. They had Lex Luger was in the building. David Boy Smith was in the building. A lot of big names were in the building. They brought my my listeners who were my winner, my contest winners, these people, And I was standing backstage. A gentleman comes over to me and he's saying, hey, what do you think? I'm like, oh, I think we could have done a little better. He goes, is there anybody you want to get a picture with? And I kind of looked at him and go, yeah, that guy. And he looked over and he goes, well, you got to ask him. I go, Can I get a picture with you? And he kind of looked and he kind of looked and he kind of looked around like I was
1: pointing to someone else. He goes, yeah. Oh, OK. And he came over. So I got a picture with Tony Gurria. Nice. Yeah, Tony's a great guy. I mean, I got to know him, uh, you know, back then taking pictures, not really ever talking to him or anything, but I really got to know him over the last four or five years at the events that I attended, like uh, Cauliflower Alley Club. Or the uh, the Luthez uh, Tragos Hall of Fame in uh, Iowa, and I actually sent him some pictures, some of my some of the pictures of him and and uh, his his wife uh, Mercy is her name, and really good guy, nice guy. Just reminds me of those early days because I always was a fan of Gurria because of his smoothness in the ring and his incredible drop kicks. I mean, he could literally go so high up on a drop kick and actually hit somebody in the chin and, and he would sometimes land on his feet. It was incredible. His, I mean, he had one of the best drop kicks I've ever seen. And I used to like,
0: after he gets your opponent down a couple of times and he'll stand up and the opponent will stand up and then he'll have his fist to his side and I'll like holding back. Like, I'm going to get you. Yes. And he, and like he had that look and he, he'd, he'd rile up the crowd just by a look, just by, Oh, go get him, Tony, go get him. And sometimes
1: he would and sometimes he wouldn't. He was charismatic, and, and there's a reason he was there for such a long time, and he was a good person. Big fan, big fan of Tony Guerrilla. Match number six, Gorilla Monsoon
0: defeated Buddy Wolf in 14 minutes, 54 seconds.
1: Yeah, Monsoon was always somebody that you'd put on the card, and of course he owned part of it. He worked in the office in, uh, on 42nd Street and 8th Avenue, the Holland Hotel, so he was uh, he was instrumental in there, and of course he was the booker in Philadelphia for the TV tapings and in Hamburg as well.
0: Match number seven, the eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant, defeated another half of the WWF Tag Team Champions, Professor Tor Tanaka, in eight minutes, 25 seconds.
1: Yeah, this was Andre's second match at Madison Square Garden. This was kind of a comedy match. It was kind of like Andre treating Tanaka like he was a small guy, and he'd lift him up, put him on the turnbuckle and tap the top of his head, and Tanaka played a great part because he was getting frustrated. Because he started to try to lift Andre up for a body slam, that ain't happening. Uh, he would be giving him judo chops to the to the belly, and that Andre would just be laughing at him. So, and when Andre finally got mad when Tanaka started choking him, that's when Andre got mad and the headbutts and the bolo punches with Andre. And I and, and remember those bolo punches because Andre just would lean back and give this guy an uppercut. And then Tanaka would just go back, and it looked so real and so good. And I remember the match vividly because I filmed it. It is a match that patrons will be able to see. But, uh, and Andre wins the match uh, with a 1 2 3. And of course, his second match of the Garden, and people were still just in awe of how massive Andre the Giant was. And Tanaka was not a tall guy, but it was a very entertaining uh, second match of the Garden for Andre the Giant.
0: And we're building Andre up. This is only his second match at the Garden. We're building him up in the company. We're building him up to be the eighth one of the world. We're building him up. Half of the tag team champions make him look like a little boy, a little kid in the ring with you. I want to know, John, and we're looking ahead now. I'm sure they'll do this and they'll put him in tag teams and stuff. But, like, who was Andre's first rival? Who was the one that everyone was like, oh, this is a big thing? I remember he fought Erdine Ladd, but that's not for a few years down the road. Who was a rival... In the WWWF for Andre, do you remember one of his first ones?
1: Yeah, I mean, doing the regular program, there really wasn't any. It was like Andre always coming to the aid of Strongbow. Or, you know, that's he did many tag team matches with Strongbow. So there really wasn't kind of a feud. The, The first feud, I really remember Andre being... And uh, it was really towards the end of the 70s. So he wasn't in a regular program with somebody that was built up because Andre was massive. And even the TV matches he had were just kind of against two guys and three guys and four guys. When Hulk Hogan came into the territory as a heel managed by Freddie Blassie, that was a buildup because they did eventually wrestle at Shea Stadium. So that was kind of a buildup as kind of a feud with Hogan and Andre. I mean, these two uh, big dudes. And then Big John Studd, you know, you're looking into the 80s. I mean, him and Big John Studd had a major feud. And then him and Hogan again when Andre was the heel. But Andre was more of this attraction. He never won a tag team championship. He would just come in. He would just be this attraction that no one could get over on. This is the building of the Giants. So
0: this is the second match of the garden, the building of the giant. Now they're trying to figure out how we're going to do things with him. And again, Vince McMahon senior this time is the brains behind this and how we're going to use him. You know, he he's not he's also he put him against half of the tag team champions. He didn't put against both tag team champions, half of the tag team champions and how we're going to build this guy up and how we're going to use him to keep him a special attraction. It's hard to keep something
1: special for that long. Not Andre, Andre is special. I mean, but, there's but nobody he, like it, him.
0: But if he did it wrong, if he, if did, he did it wrong, yeah, but that's he saw gold.
1: Meant. He saw gold with that guy. I mean, it was like that's why he 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 worked so hard to become the exclusive booking agent for Andre cuz he knew that this guy was money. This guy was going to sell tickets no matter if you put him in a little barn in uh in a small little town or you put him at uh, Madison Square Garden, no matter where Andre was. His name on that card right from the beginning. As soon as he established that this is the name we're using, it's Andre the Giant. It's not the Giant Gene Furry, It's not the Giant Rusimov, It's Andre the Giant. And once that name got out there, anytime he was on a card, you're gonna you're gonna sell an enormous amount of tickets. He was this incredible attraction. Exactly. I understand. I, I agree with you. But what I'm, I'm
0: trying to say is that, like, if if Vince Senior didn't work him like this and not have him come back so much different places. I'm wondering, you know this better than I would. Did he when he said people called him up to go to a territory? Do you think Vince knew what was going to
1: happen with him? What are you bringing him in for? What are you going to do? Oh, with him? I'm, I'm absolutely positive of that. Yeah. I mean, if somebody like Mike LaBelle who promoted uh, Los Angeles and Southern California. You know, we want to bring Andre in. Well, what are you going to do with him? We're going to have him win the 22-man Battle Royal in January. Oh, that that makes sense. Sure. And then Andre would do some house shows, and there you go. And then he's out there. and, And I'm sure that McMahon, being as careful as he was with Andre, would always make sure that wherever he was going to be booked, what's the program, what is he going to do, how many matches do you need him for, And then he would get his commission, not only from Andre, but he would get his commission from the promoters that were booking him.
0: Exactly. And that's what my point was, is that he's special. How do you keep him special? You do this kind of bookings. You make sure that he's not going to a territory to put someone over there. He's not putting anybody else over, and if he is, it's a it's a reason that he's going to come back. There was no clean finishes. He wasn't going to lose the Battle Royal while he's out there. No, you got to put him out because am any any loss would show up in the magazines would lower right. his credibility. So you, you got to right. keep him. So that's what I was meaning by by that stuff. It yes, was, it, it's, yes, it's, I get it now. It's, yes, it's, it's it's pretty amazing how and and the run that he had. Looking back, this is 1973, and through WrestleManias. How many, it was WrestleMania 3 was the big one, but he went on yeah. for a couple more after that. Half the man he was back then in the 70s, but he was still a, an amazing force to be reckoned with.
1: Yeah, he certainly was. And uh, I do remember when Andre went out to Los Angeles for the first time, it was in January 74. And I was fortunate enough to be there. You know, the 22 man battle royal was like, for me as a fan, it was the biggest event ever. It was an annual battle royal. I'd read about it in the magazines. Bruno Martino won it in 72, I believe. And then when Andre was announced, that was my dream when I was a kid. I was like, I got to go to LA to see the Battle Royal. And I had met Mike Leno through... My Freddie Blassie fan club, he was a member of the fan club and then he became a vice president of the fan club because he sent me pictures and he was a writer and he was connected with the, the Dawson family out there. So it was like, you should come out to LA. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm in still an, I'm still a senior in high school, you know? So, uh, and I asked my grandmother, I was like, I-, I would really love to go to LA for this. And she funded my trip. And the airfare, I never forget it. It was $179 round trip to LA Uh, from New York and got to see Andre win that Battle Royal in January, 74, got some really great pictures of it. And then the next day uh, we went to, uh, they had a TV taping at KCOP Studios in Los Angeles and got there early. We were allowed to get in the back because of Dawson, Richard Dawson's kids. And we get back there and uh, there's there's famous photos of it, I mean, of, of Andre getting a haircut uh, by this beautiful girl and he's getting a haircut and, and we were right there and they wouldn't let us take any pictures but at the end of the haircut i mean when they left the room uh me the dawson's and and mike just scooped up whatever hair was on the floor <laughs> what i wish i knew where it was now oh, My goodness, you have it do you think you still have it i somewhere? had a whole i had a whole like envelope full of andre's hair you think you have it somewhere I don't. I, I cannot. I can't even imagine if I have it. It's not anywhere. Oh, I know what right? that would be worth. Yeah, I know.
0: Oh, wow. And, the golden yeah. envelope. I never heard that story, John. You have an envelope of Andrea's hair somewhere. Or you did.
1: Well, I did back then. I,
0: you know, and
1: who knows where it is.
0: Oh, I hope you find it. Oh, that's so cool. Well, let, let's continue. Madison Square Garden, match number eight, the WWWF world champion Pedro Morales defeated Don Leo Jonathan with the Grand Wizard in his corner at 11 minutes, 38 seconds, when the referee Eddie Gersh stopped the match due to bleeding following a right-hand punch from the champion opening the challenger's forehead.
1: Explain this, John. Cause- yeah, I mean, it was a great match. I mean, um, I was very anti-Morales at this point. Uh, he had uh, beat Blassie on the last show. He beat Curtis. He beat uh, Lonnie Maines. So Morales was, even though the fans loved him, I always felt, and I do to this day, that Don Leo Jonathan would have been a wonderful world champion I mean, he was almost seven foot tall. He was agile. He could drop kick. He was believable. And in this match, I honestly felt, I was like, they're going to give the title to Jonathan. That was in my heart as a, not even a smart fan, really. I'm like, I knew it was worked and all of that. But I was saying, this is the guy that's going to do it because I can't see anybody beating Don Leo Jonathan. He was that good. And he was that over as a heel. But in this match, and it was a wild brawl, and it was very, uh, you know, there was a lot of action outside the ring. There were ring posts. And, and the blood wasn't really, it, was, it wasn't a massive amount of blood. It looked like, and I believe this was uh, the case, I believe Morales hit him stiff in the nose. And I remember uh, the blood coming out of Don Leo's nose. And maybe the match was supposed to be stopped on account of blood anyway. But uh, I believe that it was a it was a stiff shot to the nose. And I got it on film. So, I mean, that's why I remember it so vividly as well. Eddie Gersh stopped the match because of blood. I saw the footage you we were talking about. Don Leo Jonathan is a big
0: guy. And when he got hit, I didn't see a lot of blood. What were you saying? No. He, the guy's like six six. He's like 300 pounds. It, maybe it was a lot of blood for somebody else, but it didn't look like a lot of blood on him.
1: No, 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 no. I mean, it, it certainly, it certainly wasn't. And, and, um, uh, but uh, I remember the nose shot. That's what I remember most about that. And, uh, whether there was a little blood on the forehead too, maybe if he did a little gig to himself, I'll have to look back at that film. but And here's the thing, too, because I filmed both of their matches because he comes back for, for a rematch in the next show. I got to kind of decipher, when I look at the films again, uh, which match was which because both of them, I, I believe both of them had blood in it, if I'm not mistaken. But but anyway, I mean, we'll put this up on Patreon so people can see it. It was a very exciting match, and and the fans kind of knew that Morales was in trouble uh, because Jonathan was just so overpowering. It was a disappointment to have him lose that that way, but also exciting, knowing that he'd come back for a rematch in in the very next show.
0: Well, let's go to match number nine. Chief Jay Strongbow fought your man, Classy Freddy Blassie, to a curfew draw.
1: Yeah, this one was kind of cool. You know, people started leaving because they go catch the train or whatever. People started filtering out, and I saw these premium. Second row seats that it opened up And it's Blassy. it's my guy It's It's my favorite, you know And I had, you know, two full rolls of Eight millimeter film, and it's the last Match, and I get up there and I'm able To sit in the second row, and I Filmed that thing, and I filmed it Almost in its entirety, I think It was like at least half of the match but that was exciting just to be up close to watch Blassie and Strongbow in that match. And yeah, it did go to a draw. I might have missed my train because, you know, it's eleven ten and that show ended at eleven. So I, I, I probably had to catch the eleven forty train or the twelve ten train. Because of uh, having the opportunity to sit in the second row and film that match with uh, my hero, Freddie Blassie, against uh, that renegade Strongbow. I I forgot to ask you, did you go backstage this night? I did. Yeah, I was backstage. And uh, it was issue number three of King of Men, the Freddie Blassie fan club bulletin. i never forget it because it was on pink paper, pink mimeograph paper back then. So uh, I brought Blassie his copies and did another interview with him. Uh, my friend, Frank Favalli, who was my uh, photographer, he went backstage and took some pictures. And uh, yeah, I was backstage. Yeah, it was fun.
0: For people who don't understand how important this is, today you have social media. So if you're, you're a wrestler today or you're almost anything, you could become popular because of social media. Back in the day, if you worked territories and you weren't seen on television, in a certain territory, it would be in the magazines. Now, John made his own magazine, made a fan club magazine that went out. So for Freddie Blassie, this is great because the more people that subscribe to your magazine, the more people know about Freddie Blassie.
1: Yeah, it was an honor of Fred. But of course, every uh, issue of King of Men had an interview with Fred or stories about Fred. But I also put ratings in there and results from around the country and features on other matches. I used to cover the Madison Square Garden shows on in a report in King of Men. And it wasn't widely read, but it was kind of honoring Blassie. It was uh, it was, you know, the people that were that had joined the club were just hardcore Blassie fans. And it gave me those early chops of being able to write. I I never forget it. I mean, I'd, I'd be locked in my room with this rudimentary typewriter that some of the keys stuck, you know, some of the letters never had an impression on the paper until my mom kind of lobbied my dad and got me a new typewriter. And I was so happy when that happened. But anyway, I was... I was kind of this kid that, you know, I didn't like to go to school. I don't really think about wrestling. And I would just lock myself in my room and write stories and kind of figure out a way how, you know, what the next show I'm going to cover and how, how can I afford the the film that's needed for the movies. And so, I mean, it was just kind of an interesting childhood, you know, and, and I was so obsessed with it. And my dad would be like, that's, you know, this stuff is all fake. I don't understand why you like this stuff, you know, and uh <laughs> <laughs> uh, my mom supported it more than my dad did, but my dad always came through because you know I was a kid I was in high school I you know I worked as a as a paper boy and I worked in a supermarket to try to make extra dough and spend my money on wrestling magazines and go into wrestling matches. That's what I did. And
0: just in my mind substituting typewriter for computer, typewriter for cell phone
1: things that kids ask for today. Oh I get I get yelled at because the typewriter made noise. <laughs> Yes. wasn't like today. It would be like you, you'd be pounding the typewriter and it would be like, I hear my sister in the other room, stop typing, you know, you know, I'm trying to sleep. And I'd be like, you know, it'd be like, and then you tried to sneak and, and type softly, but it never worked. I mean, those things were loud. Yeah. They were loud. <laughs> and my dream at the time was to have an electric typewriter, which, you know, we certainly couldn't afford, you know, and and then in high school, I I took typing classes so I could type better. That's amazing. And my teacher, my teacher was uh, there was a guy named Al Jackson. who was a, a member of the original New York Mets, sixty two Mets. And his wife Nadine was my typewriter teacher. It was, was kind of cool. Anyway, that's a I, I digress. I digress, uh, John. How would you rate this card? I would rate it pretty good. But, I mean, I, I do want to mention a few things about Blassie, too. I mean, I, I love the card, first and foremost, just because Blassie was on there. I got backstage. Andre was there. The exciting match between Jonathan and Morales. Uh, but Blassie was, uh, you know, a lot of people say, why did you start a fan club for him? I started a fan club for Blassie reading about him in the magazines. And reading about all these injuries he came back from, and he was a monster heel, but he had, uh, I believe he had a kidney removed. He had hepatitis. He had all of these ailments and injuries and he kept coming back and coming back there was a time he couldn't wrestle and he became a used car salesman in atlanta matter of fact his business card with freddie Blassie, mr wrestling four-time world champion uh you know i've saw copies of of that business card and i wish i had one actually but he made his madison square garden debut on november 14th 1954 and he beat kinji shibuya who also became a big name in los angeles Blassie also uh, was called Mister Wrestling at one time, you know, and you're you're called Miss Wrestling now. Yeah, <laughs> we always had that synergy, and I miss Freddie, man. I I really do, and and uh, Blassie kind of like if it wasn't for Fred Blassie, I wouldn't be doing this today. It, it's so nice when you get to meet your idols, and they're cool people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was really always supportive and very nice. So just a great guy. Great guy.
0: The letters he sent to you from Boston, the postcards he used yeah. to send you, the time yeah. he gave you for interviews.
1: Yeah. How kind he was, to, even to my sister, I mean, when he met her outside the Brooklyn roller Rama in Bensonhurst. And he was wrestling uh, Strongbow that night, ironically. Uh, and uh, that was one of those uh, house shows, and it was like in a little roller rink. And he always asked about her. How's Donna doing? How's Donna doing? Even to the last, the last time I talked to him, how are your parents? How's Donna? You know, and, and, you know, I'll never forget that man. When was the last time you talked to him? Last time I spoke to Blassie was actually in 91 and, uh, I had him on the radio show for two hours and I, I had lobbied to get him on the radio show. And I was a persona non grata with, uh, WWF. And after all the steroid coverage and McMahon decided to, uh, call some of the reporters and the sheet writers into a meeting at the WWF the SummerSlam weekend 91 the same weekend as weekend of champions when I had Ric Flair there so McMahon invited myself Dave Meltzer Wade Keller Dr. Mike Lano was in the room and a couple of others and he and he put us in this room where it was almost like a classroom and McMahon came in uh, and stood up at the podium and was like, come on, guys, you know, let, can't we all kind of get along and work together? We're all in the business together. And da, da, da. I said, well, you know, there's no cooperation. You know, what can I do? I said, listen, I ran Freddie Blassie's fan club. Can't you know, I would love to get him on the show for an interview done, you know, and and then it happened. I got clearance and Blassie spent two hours on my radio show, which was just amazing. Did you ever try to get him to one of your conventions? I didn't because I was not going to be allowed. And I would have loved it because, you know, I couldn't book him in 91 because that detente happened that weekend, the Weekend of Weekend of Champions. And the detente only lasted for a few months. When Flair came in and started working with Hogan, their first matches were in Los Angeles and out on the West Coast. And I reported on what happened out there and then they called up and was like, this is why we can't do business with you guys, because you're exposing the business and you're giving away the finish of Flair and Hogan. And that's when communication stopped again. Wow. I I didn't know that. Yeah. We had a few months of detente, you know, and and so it was. And then, of course, you know, you get to 92 and that's when the shit hit the fan with the sex scandals and all the other stuff. And it was over. It was over from there. And I could never get Blassie on the show again. And I certainly couldn't book him for an appearance, although that would have been a dream for me to do. Well, if you'd like to see any of John's history,
0: history of this match, history of Freddie Blassie, you have to go and join our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash John Arizzy. We have 8 millimeter film up there. John,
1: did you ever get those letters up there from Freddie? I don't know if I scanned those or not. I, 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 I might have not done that yet. All right, we'll, we'll make sure we put those up because... Uh, something from what was it some motel outside of Boston? He was writing you from. Yeah, it was uh, it was the uh, Ma- the Madison Hotel, which was adjacent to the Boston Garden. That's where Blassie stayed when he was uh, there before he bought his house in Hartsdale. When he came in to manage in '74 uh, with Volkoff, and that's when he permanently stayed in the Northeast. He bought himself a house with his wife, who Japanese wife, Mayako, and they moved to Hartsdale, and that's where he lived the rest of his life.
0: I I, I did not know that. Patreon.com slash John Arizzy, Five dollars gets you in the door, and you help to keep the lights on here. Uh, our next show is June 4th, 1973. There is no Madison Square Garden house show in the month of May. Headlined in June, Don Leo Jonathan getting his crack at Pedro Morales in a Texas death match.
1: Yeah, we'll look forward to reviewing that one. It's going to be a good one to review, and I look forward to it. I mean, this is kind of cool to do this, Jim. I mean, it really jars the memory and it brings up stories, and to be able to tell you stories that you had never heard before, and you know me really well, and yep. you've known me for thirty years. It just kind of it kind of triggers the memory a little bit, you know.
0: And here, here's another thing. Richie wanted me to remind everyone: we're going to have that show June fourth. But also June 30th is another show at Madison Square Garden. It's another house show at Madison Square Garden. And it's the first time, and I didn't even know this, that the show was
1: shown on cable. HBO, home box office, used to run shows from the garden. Yeah, that was kind of cool. It wasn't, I don't know how many months they did it for. But yeah, those shows were classics, classics. And of course, I'm sure that uh, everyone's going to really enjoy the special that we're putting together, too, for May 13th, 1963, 60 years. After Buddy Rogers lost to Bruno Sammartino in 47 seconds. So we're actually going to do a show highlighting that 60th anniversary of that show when Bruno won the
0: belt. And the buildup to that and how it came about and all the behind the scenes will be on that special episode that we're working on right now for you. There's so much stuff that I want to tell you right now that me and John are talking about that I can't tell you because it's just so interesting. When you start getting behind the scenes, you can see the match for what it is. You think one thing, but then when you find out behind the scenes what was going on and the history between these two men and history with these companies, it's pretty amazing. So it's definitely a show you don't want to miss. Once again, we want to do a shout out to Scott Teal and Crowbar
1: Press. His book, Wrestling at the Garden, the Battle for New York, is like our Bible. It certainly is. And uh, without that book, I mean, you know, we certainly couldn't do this show because it had us all, the, all the results in there from all the shows. It jars the memory. And uh, one thing I do want to mention before we wrap it up, this is a show that has a niche audience. The numbers for this show, the people who listen to this show, they love hearing about the history. We'd love to grow the audience. Tell your friends about it. But even if it's just, you know, the numbers of people that we have listening to it now, they appreciate this monthly recap of what happened 50 years ago. And some people were there 50 years ago. So uh, this is kind of fun for people to do. And it's really one of the most unique podcasts out there. When you could go back 50 years and review a show that somebody who was alive attended meaning me it really is kind of unique so uh, spread the word about it man
0: share it on social media uh, one of the things i wanted to bring up on we were talking about this a while ago how we're one of the few if any shows we're definitely the only show that does the history of the wwf before the 80s that's for sure no one else even the wwf doesn't go before wrestlemania anymore they don't even talk about things before there was a wrestlemania and we're showing they don't it. like history they don't enjoy history they don't talk about history we're telling you how things started here. This history that we talk about in this show built this company. This history that we talked about made this company possible. So this is, these are the cornerstones, the foundation of this company that just sold for billions of dollars. But if it wasn't for the times that
1: we talk about, it would have never happened. That is true, Tim. You said it perfectly. Well, thank you, John. Anything else, John? That's about it, man. It's always good to hang with you on this podcast, and uh, I really appreciate you and Richie for kind of being the catalyst behind launching the show when we did. We all enjoy it, and we look forward to the next episode. Fantastic. Our next episode is our special Bruno
0: San Martino episode, so you don't want to miss that. For John Arizzi and Richie Garcia, I'm Tim Putre. We'll see you next time.